Thanks, Beth. I've called this morning shocking behavior because I think that's what it feels like when you read this passage, first of all. Shocks and surprises. When the bad stuff makes the most noise, we can miss the greatest moments, can't we? Actually, controversy normally wins over charity in the news. Attention-grabbing beats some great news stories. But the biggest, the most shocking thing, anything anyone's ever done for me, anyone ever done to me, that took my breath away for weeks, it wasn't anything bad. It wasn't being brought to account for my bad behavior. It wasn't anything. The biggest shock of my life was a gift that I didn't expect or deserve. I'll take you back a few years. I was living in Edinburgh. I was ooh, 22 maybe. And I was working in a stationery shop for a, a dodgy boss, shall we say. A dodgy boss who later I found out was moving all the money out of the company, um, refusing to pay his staff. and made me... Re- Oh, the, the company went bust in the end. Um, and I lost about three months' worth of wages. Which, I don't know what that count carried up to. Maybe a couple of thousand pounds. That meant, as a 22-year-old, I couldn't afford to pay my rent. And technically, I guess at that point, I would have been made homeless. Um, apart from a mate who let me crash in his box room for a while. So at that point, wind's taken out of my sails. What do you do? Life was falling apart until one day, and this genuinely happened, a letter came through my mate's door from a friend that I hadn't spoken to for years. I didn't know how he knew what was going on in my life. And it was a letter that contained a check for a thousand pounds. This guy had heard somehow what I was going through and wanted to help out. I was speechless. This wasn't a rich man. This was a man who had compassion on me. I'm still speechless. Six years later. How do you say thank you for that? Some of the greatest moments are actually the biggest shocks of our life. And we're back in the story of Exodus this morning, looking at the shocking behavior of God. This is where we're up to. Moses is an Israelite and he's been abandoned as a baby. He's been adopted as an Egyptian into Pharaoh's house. He defends an Israelite by killing an Egyptian. He's therefore rejected by the Israelites and hunted by the Egyptians. And so he runs and hides in the middle of nowhere for 80 years. He gets married and has two kids and becomes a shepherd. You think your life is complicated? Try being Moses. And now God has got in touch with Moses, speaking to him through the burning bush, calling and persuading him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. Finally, Moses agrees. You think, oh, it's going to be plain sailing from here on out, isn't it? I don't think so. Let's turn back to Exodus. It's on page 61 in the church Bible. And these are the first few verses. Exodus chapter 4, from verse 18. 
It says, Then Moses went back to his father-in-law and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And so Moses took his wife and sons. He put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. It's great to see Moses going ahead with it. Even after all his complaints last week, he's now got the confidence to step out in faith. Sure, he simplifies the details to his father-in-law, but who doesn't do that from time to time? He receives his approval, and then God reassures him that the people who wanted to kill him are dead. That's pretty important information. And it says, And Moses takes with him the staff of God. Earlier in the chapter, it was just a staff. And now that he's offered it to God, now it's become the staff of God. This staff is no longer ordinary, but will be used to display God's power and to work many miracles, turning the Nile into blood, parting the Red Sea, bringing water out of rocks. Do you want to be used by God? Well, here's where to start. And it's in Romans chapter 12. This is verse 1. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. This is your true and proper worship. As we do that, as we offer our very bodies to God, we are no longer ordinary. We become servants of God. We are equipped at that point, probably not with staffs, to be honest, but with the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit in our character. God prepares us and gives us all the means we need to do the mission he has in store for us. What a brilliant start. This has turned out to be a lovely story, isn't it? But the Bible isn't always a smooth ride. And when we read it, we hit some passages that are a bit tricky, that seem pretty shocking. And God does some embarrassing things. Wouldn't God be more palatable, more attractive, more easier to promote if he was just nice all the time? Well, shock number one in this passage is no more Mr. Nice Guy. Let me show you. Read with me verse 21 down to 23. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you will perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Wow. No more Mr. Nice Guy. God is giving Moses a heads up of what's coming. Sure, I appreciate that. But what God promises to do sounds pretty harsh including killing Pharaoh's firstborn son. Why does God do things like this? Why is God willing to be so ruthless, cause such heartache and destruction? Here's the big picture answer first. To display God's power. Even enemies 
who try to work and fight against God are used in his victory. No one can destroy God's plan. Nations all around the Middle East after this time heard the stories of what happened in Egypt and how the God of Israel rescued his people. If the living God of heaven and earth is getting involved and rescuing his people, and anyone, can anyone, should anyone, be able to stand in the way? See, if this was man versus man, you'd maybe expect more of a fight, maybe more of an even fight, maybe even cause some disruption to their plan. But when a man has the audacity to stand up to God, to rebel against God, only one being is going to win that fight. This is a man trying to take on God. And even the attacks of enemies are turned around by God to be, bring about his own victory. Pharaoh, in his defiance, is used to show that the living God is all-powerful, in control of all things, even his enemies, and cannot be defeated. The story of God's rescue of the Israelites goes viral, thanks to Pharaoh's refusal to let the people go, and therefore, the display of God's power that follows. Even some of these horrific plagues. But, but if you're looking at this passage, you'll see something else. That God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What's going on there? Genuinely, look at this verse with me. Look at it honestly. Don't try and skip through the tough bits of the Bible. Second half of verse 21. See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. What are you doing, God? Is God manipulating Pharaoh and then punishing him for that same behavior? Because that's certainly what it looks like. We need to remember, God is giving Moses an insight into what will happen in the future. And when you scan through the chronological story, it begins with Pharaoh hardening his own heart against God, even in the face of miraculous signs. In Plague 2, he acknowledges that it is God doing this and promises to let the Israelites go. As soon as the frogs are gone, he goes back on his word. Plague 3, his own magicians say to him, this is the finger of God. But he refuses to listen. Plague 4, he says, okay, I'll let them go. Hurry and pray for me. He's realizing this God has power. This God can help him. And then once the flies are gone, he changes his tune. It is not until plague 6 when God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And from then on, it's a mixture. Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's actually ten of each. Ten times of Pharaoh being stubborn and ten times of God making Pharaoh more stubborn. 
God is responding to Pharaoh's own actions. Pharaoh's in no way an innocent party. He's been enslaving and mistreating the Israelites for years, and now he chooses to stand against God, refusing to let the people go, promising and then going back on his promise. And this is Pharaoh's judgment day. God calls time on Pharaoh's rebellion. As Pharaoh pushes God away, God removes Pharaoh's ability to respond to God, even despite miraculous signs. The Bible teaches that human beings are made to make free choices. Yet people can choose to rebel against God's goodness. And consistent rebellion can lead their hearts to being hardened. Part of God's righteous judgment is to give you what you want. Have you spent your life pushing God away, refusing to listen to him? God will not force you. He will not brainwash you to follow him. No, he'll he'll give you what you want. And that's one of the worst things he could do to you. Do you want nothing to do with God? Well, then one day he will give you what you want. On the final judgment day, when God calls time on this world, if you spent your life wanting nothing more to do with God, that's exactly what you'll get. And you'll experience how horrible it is to be in a place void of God's presence, void of his common grace, the way he gives everyone good things to enjoy. That'll all be gone. In God's judgment of Pharaoh, in response to his rebellion, God is just. God gives Pharaoh what he wants. He makes Pharaoh truly stubborn, past the point of no return. But here's the difference for us. In our free choices, we choose to rebel against God. And over time, we become more and more stubborn. And God gives us what we want to a degree. He allows us that. But he doesn't take away our opportunity to repent. We have this life to listen and respond to God. But after this life, we face judgment. The time for repentance will be over. And God will let you have nothing more to do with him. If that's been the tune of your life. If that's really what you want. See, in some ways, this isn't shocking behavior from God. This is justice. How would we expect God to react to people who rebel against him? The audacity and rudeness to hear God and refuse to listen and choose to rebel. God makes Pharaoh's stubbornness permanent. He becomes so stubborn that it's only the death of his own son that compels him to let the Israelites go. But he even changes his mind on that and chases after them. That's for another day, I guess. Justice means that we all deserve to be cast out of God's presence once and for all. Completely separate from God. Completely separate from the God we've tried so hard to ignore. So hard to replace or offend. 
justice is not a shock. The next shock we potentially get in this passage comes in the next set of verses. When holiness trumps usefulness. Read with me verses 24 to 26. It says, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. She says, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, Bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. God has put so much effort into Moses, rescuing him from the bulrushes on the banks of the Nile, speaking to him through the burning bush, persuading him, even though he's a right wimpy and whingy old man, to be honest. And finally, Moses has agreed and is en route to Egypt. And suddenly, God is about to kill him, all because he hasn't circumcised his son, genuinely. Look, his wife realizes what is going on, cuts off her son's foreskin, and so God leaves him alone. Does a foreskin matter that much? It's making a pretty small thing into a pretty big deal. Why? Is it worth killing over? Especially the man you've chose to lead your people. Circumcision was a requirement for every male Israelite. At eight days old, every Israelite must be circumcised. And any male living in their house, even their servants, must be circumcised. Why? Because it was a mark. It was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham back in Genesis 17. Have a look later if you want. It was a contract between God and the people of Israel. God promises to do loads of stuff on his half of it. He says, I promise to make you a fruitful and influential nation. I promise to give you the land of Canaan as your everlasting possession. I promise to be your God. And just one thing God asks of them. Circumcise every male. Not because there's anything magical about it, but to show that they remember and wait for the promises of God. More than that, that they care who their God is. That they trust in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But Moses just hasn't bothered to circumcise his own son. An apathy towards God. Disrespect and disobedience. Circumcision was a question of holiness, being set apart as God's people. And Moses' holiness is more important to God than his usefulness. And if it's judgment day for Pharaoh, then why shouldn't it be for Moses too? Why should Moses be held to a lower standard? Does his usefulness to God mean that his holiness doesn't matter? That he can disobey and disrespect God? Not a chance. I remember being at school, I was doing my A-levels, and thinking I could stretch the rules a little with my form tutor. Me and my mate had a laugh with him at times. I had done a few favours for him. And so we thought we could get away turning up late and chatting straight through registration. And he gave us a bit of freedom at first. I think until he realised that our behaviour was because we didn't respect him. 
and we thought we had him around our little finger. And we came back to reality with a bump and a few detentions. Being useful, being friendly, doesn't mean we get to live by lower standards. Holiness trumps usefulness. Especially for God's leaders. Moses is the instrument of God and that God is using to bring about the freedom of the Israelites. So God's about to kill Moses because of his unholiness. Moses' wife, by a speedy snip, brings back the family to obedience with God. The mark of their trust in God's covenant with Abraham. A mark of faith in the living God. It's the same for us. Not, thankfully, not circumcision. Um, but holiness trumps usefulness. Being useful does nothing to patch up our holiness. Our disrespect, our disobedience can't be overlooked. And holiness is only found in the, the new covenant with God. See, the new covenant has changed a bit through Jesus Christ. And here's now what God promises to do. He says, by the death of Jesus, he will take away your sinful record. Every sin you have or will commit. And replace it with Jesus' perfect record. The 33 years he lived on this earth. By Jesus' resurrection, he will give you an eternal life that starts now and will continue even after your body has failed and this world has ended. Not only that, we were adopted as his children and have all the privileges of being part of his family. And he promises to be our God forever. How do we sign up to this new covenant? How do we become part of it? Well, it's, it's not circumcision. It's not usefulness to God or the church. It's to trust in Jesus Christ and his ability to fulfill this covenant because he's already died and risen again. You see, when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and this gospel, this covenant, we have a new sign that marks us out as holy in God's sight. A mark to show and assure us that we are part of this new covenant. Not a cross around our necks, but the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Given to every believer, meaning that our hearts won't grow stubborn to God, but are brought alive by being in God's presence. The Bible says we're actually sealed with his Holy Spirit. The design, divine seal that proves and guarantees that we are a forgiven child of God and we will receive eternal life. Are you part of that covenant? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ and God's promises? Has the Holy Spirit made its home in your life? No longer to be stubborn, but to come alive in Christ. Because this is crucial. Holiness trumps usefulness. And holiness is only found in this new covenant with God. We read this scary passage. I found it scary the first time I found it in, in the book of Matthew. And Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? 
and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. We don't bring a CV to God. Can you imagine if we did? I'd be adding everything onto the list I could think of. Even the smallest thing I've done, in just this kind of vain hope that they'd count for something. I did the washing up when Rachel didn't ask me to. I smiled at some homeless guy because I didn't have any change. Even if we came up with an amazing CV, I prophesied for you, Jesus. I cast out demons for you. I invited 73 people to the Alpha Course. I did this. I did that. Holiness is required to be in God's presence. A CV of works and experience can't do that. And so we come in the name of Jesus alone. Before trying to be useful for God, put your trust in Jesus Christ. Your actions cannot save you. The actions of Jesus Christ will. Is it a shock that God was willing to kill Moses? for his apathy and disrespect. Why should Moses get away with it? Just because he's an instrument in God's hands, all the more reason to prioritize and require holiness. Because we will all stand before God's judgment seat. No matter what our role in this life, even the Pope. And this isn't a shock. This is justice. This is just God being just. So, where is this shocking behaviour of God? Well, try and find with me the moment that really shocks the Israelites in this passage. You see, now Moses goes and meets Aaron. Moses explains what's happened. And they go and meet the elders of the Israelites. They show him the signs. They explain that to the elders. And then, right at the end, He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. The real shock of this passage is that God is merciful and compassionate. The most shocking thing anyone's ever done for me. The thing that took my breath away. The biggest shock of my life was the gift I didn't expect or deserve. The biggest shocks are the great moments when someone out of generosity, compassion and mercy unexpectedly lifts us out of our despair. And this was for the Israelites. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Knowing that the God of heaven and earth sees what they're going through and is concerned about them. And God's concern is more than just like a distant sympathy. You know the kind when you're you're watching TV and one of those really heartbreaking charity advert comes on while you're eating your dinner. That kind of distant sympathy where you didn't even remember to donate kind of sympathy. God isn't like that. God's concern and compassion breaks his heart and causes him to act. 
He's got involved. He's preparing the reluctant Moses to lead them out of slavery, out of Egypt, to the promised land. See, God hasn't forgotten about them. God has heard their cry and seen their misery. It is realizing that God cares for them that causes them to fall on their knees, takes the wind out of their sails with no other response but worship of God's greatness. God, the all-living, the powerful God of heaven and earth, who can turn his enemies and his enemies' attacks into his victory, who can perform divine miracles through an apathetic man and a wooden staff. God who will bring ultimate justice to the world and therefore judge everyone who has ever lived. He sees our predicament. He sees our hopeless case and has compassion on us. And his compassion drives him to act, to rescue his people. See, when we see how how great God truly is. And when we see ourselves for how small we really are, when we see God for how holy He really is, and ourselves for how corrupted we really are, in our pit of despair, as it were, a hopeless case, the almost unbelievable shock is that God cares for us. You see, the story could end with God's justice. Final judgment day. Wrongs are paid for. Atrocities brought to justice. And that would be a good story. It would be a satisfying ending. But the shock of the Bible is this. It's the greatest story ever told that there is justice and mercy. We deserve God's judgment. That is honestly what we deserve. Most of us know this, unless we're so proud that we think we're perfect. But God is also merciful and offers us forgiveness. Jesus pays us on our behalf, satisfying God's requirement for justice. The penalty, the punishment was taken by Jesus. Why would he do that? He didn't need to. We couldn't force him to. He chose to because he cares for us. He chose to give his life to save ours. To have mercy on us. In Romans, Paul brings back up this idea of Moses. In Romans chapter 9, he's questioning Paul's asking a question. He's saying, is God unjust? No, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Justice is the base level. It's what we all deserve. It's what Pharaoh got. It's what Moses almost got. Justice will happen to us all. And yet, there's some shocking, special, surprising moments when God is merciful to us and chooses to be compassionate. Don't be surprised by a God 
that God is a God of justice. Justice just means that we all deserve to be cast out of God's presence, once and for all. That God will make our stubbornness permanent and be completely separate from God. From the God we've so tried so hard to ignore and replace or offend. Justice is not the shock. Instead, be amazed today that he's also a God of mercy and of compassion. To bow down and worship. What other response is there when you realize that the God of heaven cares for you and wants to rescue you? And we kind of end up where we began in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's spend a moment in prayer before we sing our final song. Father God, we come before you ashamed of our own record. Ashamed of the sin in our life. And realizing the penalty we deserve, the justice that you require. And we just understand that that is not you being acting in a wrong way, acting in a disgraceful way. That is you being a God of justice. And we have offended you. And though that is the the foundation, Lord, we just, we thank you that even though you could judge us all, instead, you offer us your mercy. And you offer it to everyone in this world no matter what they've done, that we can believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. Believe in his death on the cross and become part of this new covenant. This new covenant that wipes away every sin so that we will be as white as snow. That will give us eternal life so we can live in heaven with you. And at that moment you adopt us be your children. And all of that, to people who deserve nothing, as people who just deserve your wrath, and instead you are merciful. Instead you are compassionate. Lord, the fact that you love us, the God of heaven loves small people like us, We pray that today that would blow us away. That that would be the shocking behavior we would talk about when we go home. When we read your word, that we would be blown away that the God of heaven loves individuals like us. And is merciful to us, despite our behavior. And so we we can do nothing but put our trust in you. Put our faith in your son. Lord, we do this in in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
understand and say.